can open your Bibles to the book of Exodus 24. Before I get into the message part, I couldn't fit this into our little tribute this morning um, concerning 9-11, but a few years back, I went down to Mayport, Florida, when I was in my chaplain school training, and while I was there, there happened to be um, in docked there in Cape May, the USS New York, which much of which was constructed out of steel from the Twin Towers and the wreckage there. And I was able to tour that boat and take some pictures of that. Um, they haven't forgotten. They haven't forgotten. There's, there are still ways in which our military gives tribute to, to that event. It, is a, it really is an important event in our history. We were all, you know, I don't know how old you were at the time and how many, it was 15 years ago, what, you know, what has changed in your life in 15 years, but it has marked our lives for sure. Well, that being said, we can move on to uh, our study. You're in Exodus 24. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that we have this time to consider your word. Thank you that your word is true. We pray that you would help us to yield our hearts and minds to you, that we would allow your spirit to teach us. Help me that I would be uh, completely setting myself aside, allowing your spirit to accomplish your will in and through me for your glory, for the benefit of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. How many days have you been alive? I know you can tell me how many years you've been alive. It's easy to calculate. I did a little quick calculation. Uh, I've been alive under 15,000 days. But that's, that's a lot of days. Some of you, many more than that. Um, how many hours have you been alive? I, I, I think I did that calculation. I can't remember. I, I wasn't able to remember. So 40 times 365 for me. That's 14,600 not including the days since my birthday. It's another half a year, so. Uh, times 24. 350,400 hours. Some of you are older than I am. So I'm not going to the minutes. Not going to the minutes. I also did a quick calculation of approximately, approximately, how many days it's been since Jesus said he would come back. He ascended, and the angel said he'll be back. 725,000 days. You know how many hours that comes out to? Over 17 million. What's the point of this small mathematical exercise? Day, 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 monotony, next day, next month, next year. It, it is amazing. It seems like every other week or three, Lynn and I say, where did this year go? And it's not the same year that we're saying it about. It just seems like we're constantly saying, wow, we're, we're already at the end of this calendar. We're going to start using the calendar for next year and planning things out. It, it, things just go and go and go. Well, sometimes in the process of that much time and what seems to be unending sameness, we can lose sight of that, those things that are most important. 
and sometimes it can impact the way that we think and live our lives. I want for us to look at a passage in Exodus just for a few minutes, and it will springboard us into a discussion. Exodus 24, beginning in verse 15. Exodus 24, 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So they're seeing some form of God's presence. They see the cloud and they see this fire. They're seeing some form of God's presence. Verse 18, Moses entered the cloud and went upon the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Then we have got Exodus 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, and then we come to chapter 32. Take a look at chapter 32. In between 24 and 32, we have all this description of the place of meeting, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the details that go with it. God was really telling them, I want to have a place where my people know I dwell among them. Moses is gone, receiving this instruction, and the people start to get antsy. When's he coming back? Is he coming back? If he doesn't come back, what are we going to do? And so there's this turmoil in their minds. It said 40 days and 40 nights. It's not that long. But it's long if you don't know. They went, he went into the midst of a cloud, and they saw fire. Maybe he didn't make it. Maybe he perished by the fire. I don't know what's going on in their minds. Other than what we see here in Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to them, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These... These are your gods, O Israel, very specifically, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. That's interesting. I was reading in a book with my wife, and we were reading through, and this text was referenced. Let me just read a little section here of what this author had to say. In this episode 
Moses ascends the same mountain he formerly visited amid, amid smoke, thunder, and lightning. He was summoned to a meeting with God. The glory of God was manifest to the people as a consuming fire. But God himself was hidden from them, concealed by clouds. Moses entered the cloud cover. His mission was one of pure theology. He was pursuing God himself. In the light of this display, we must assume that the people left behind were not atheists. In other words, they saw God. They know something's going on. They're not atheists. They're aware of God's reality and his saving work. They were neither secularists nor liberals. They were the evangelicals of the day, recipients of special revelation and participants in the redemptive exodus. Later in this narrative, however, we read of a startling shift in their behavior. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. What follows is an unprecedented act of apostasy, the making and worshiping of a golden calf. This was an exercise in religion, one that focused its worship on a creature. When they made their priceless, state-of-the-art calf, they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Notice that this is a theological affirmation. They claimed that the golden calf was God, and that the calf had delivered them from bondage. This theology was blatantly false. It was also evident, or evidence, that false religion flows out of false theology. Their calf was an idolatrous graven image which exchanged the truth of God for a lie and traded the glory of God for the glory of an artistic creation. As that was going on, my thoughts went elsewhere. That happens sometimes when you read. I think, that sounds like something else. And it made my mind wander a bit, this scene of Moses going up the people had encountered God in some way. They saw this visible representation of God, how God revealed himself. Moses is gone. They're waiting, and they get tired of waiting. It's as if day ran into day, night ran into night, and they had no patience left. They didn't really know, is he coming back? What are we going to do next? And they acted. And it made me think about the fact that about 725,000 days ago, Jesus ascended. He ascended into the clouds, and he's been seated at the right hand of the Father ever since. And with that ascension, there was a declaration that he will return in like manner. And there's this record in the New Testament of us waiting for him. So let, let's look around at that for a couple of moments. <coughs> While we're looking at this, take a look at Acts chapter 1. While you're turning there, here's the question. What are you and I to do while we wait? What should we do while we wait for Jesus to come back? Acts chapter 1 is where we're turning. It seems to me, even amongst professing Christendom, that... Our expectation of the Lord's return has lessened to the degree that we seek other things to fill in the place that belongs to Him. 
In Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, the scene of Jesus' ascension, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when the, he had said these things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up. Or as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Well, I know why they stood looking into heaven. They just saw Jesus. <laughs> That's what we would do, right? Say, Hey, wait, I'm not done with you yet. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into the heavens. In other words, he's coming back. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As the book of Corinthians is opened, there's this thanksgiving, and part of the thanksgiving is a call to wait. It says, in, beginning in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's a lot here, but right smack dab in the middle of it, in verse 7, as you wait. As you wait for what? The revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The revealing, this, this apocalypse, this revelation, this return of Christ. Look a little further with me at Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, in this section, he starts off in verses 1 through 11. <coughs> speaking about uh, glorying in God, glorying in Jesus Christ, worshiping God in the Spirit. He talks about that, and, and he says, I don't have anything to glory of in myself. My flesh profits nothing. I, I, I may have this great credential as far as, heaven, uh, as far as earthly standards are concerned and men are concerned, but as far as God is concerned, it's all dung. I've learned to agree with God that my accomplishments are dung. That's what he says, essentially, and that... Um, if I really want anything that's worth anything, I need Jesus Christ's righteousness, and it only comes by faith in Christ. God has graciously given me the righteousness of Christ by faith. That is what I glory in. So I want to know him. I want to I be conformed to him. I want to I understand him. I want to love him, and I want to follow him, and I want his, his imprint on my life, essentially, is what he says in verses 10 and 11. It was certainly not the... A quotation, but a, uh, a small paraphrase. Verses 12 through 14, we know about this. I, I don't, I don't want to go backwards. I have not attained that for which I was attained. I'm not, I'm not going to allow what's behind me to keep me back, and I'm not going to allow what's right here. I'm just going to keep on pressing forward. I press toward the mark. We know about this passage. Then he talks about having examples, having examples. Well, there are some good examples. Then he says there are some bad examples. 
Well, with all that said, um, you may think that you have it great as Philippian citizens. We may think we have it great as American citizens, but that's not what we glory in, he says. In verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so he says, we await a Savior, a Savior to come from heaven. So we've got Paul saying it. We have, the, have it in the, the, the early church or even before Pentecost. We have this event. Now take a look at one more passage about this. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Again, it's familiar. Now the Apostle John talks to us about God's love. And the appearing, he says in verse 1 of 1 John chapter 3, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know this, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Jesus went into heaven. His people are to be waiting for him. Are you his people? Are you one of his people? So many have put their focus on some type of idol. They didn't think, I think I'm going to go off toward idolatry now. Just occupied by other things. We struggle not to idolize so many things. Think about it in your own life, whether formerly or presently. Okay? Your vocation, the thing you do for work that makes you money. Sometimes we allow that thing to be our idol. Can't lose this job. I've got to do this. I need to invest all this time and I, all this energy into this. Education. Family. Success of one form or another, whether it be ministry success, career success, status. Sometimes people can idolize relaxation. Sometimes people can... This is, this is where I struggle, okay? So I'm just going to... Drop this one out there. You can condemn me if you want. I idolize peace. I just want people to be not fighting. I don't want my kids fighting. I don't want you fighting. I don't want them fighting. I don't want those people fighting. Fighting stinks. I don't like unrest. I like peace. Peace and calm and happiness, it's a good thing. This is what I like. I can idolize it. It can be an idol for me. This, any one of these, and many others that could be added to the equation, is substituting something that might be good, but cannot satisfy you, like Christ can. We, satis we, we sacrifice minimal satisfaction for ultimate satisfaction. That's what these folks did back in Exodus. God was on that mountain. 
His presence was there. He, he, he caused his visible presence to be there. Moses went up to receive instruction. The law, truth, instructions regarding the construction of a tabernacle where God would dwell with them. So they would never have to wonder if God was with them or not. Forty days in, they just couldn't tolerate it any longer. So they found something to substitute for God. Don't think that we are any different. We may put spiritual cloth on our idols. It doesn't take away the idolatry. Anything that we substitute for God himself, or specifically Christ himself, is an idol. A lapse of time can lull us to sleep. We can become complacent. What should be on our minds while we await our Savior to bring in the consummation of all things? How many days have you been waiting? How many days has it been since you've been saved? How many days has it been since the first time you heard that Jesus was coming back? How many hours has it been since you knew that Jesus was going to come and get his people and bring about the conclusion of all of God's plans? So many days. So many hours. So many minutes. And because it's been so many, there can be this lulling to sleep. What do we do while we wait? Titus chapter 2, please. Beginning in verse 11, God's word says, For the grace of God has appeared. What does the grace of God do in this context? It brings salvation for all people. Training us, teaching us, instructing us, maturing us to renounce ungodliness, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is a power-packed passage. And it's very informative for us. We are, we're waiting. Are, are you waiting? Who are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Well, I'm waiting for the kingdom. I'm waiting for this. I'm waiting for, for, for there to be no more pain. I'm waiting for no more debt. I'm waiting for no more sorrow. I don't want any more tears. I don't want any more disappointments. I don't want any more uh, taxes. <laughs> I don't know. What are you waiting for? The way that it's written here is it's, it's a person. And it's not just any old person. It's Jesus, okay? But he's the one that redeemed us. He's the one that laid down his life for us. We're waiting to see with our eyes what we know with the mind and our heart. We know him. We've met him. 
We are related to him. We, we have experienced him. We've tasted that the Lord is gracious. And we're waiting to see him with our eyes. We, we can't wait to see him. He laid down his life. This is the greatest event that we could ever imagine because the, the salvation that we know and taste and feel and are so thankful for will be consummated and, and it will be brought to its final destination will be with Christ forever. While we wait, what shall we do? Well, the first thing, the first item of this text is renounce ungodliness. It's an interesting statement. And I might add, it is difficult for we dignified Christians to think of ourselves as ever truly ungodly. The concept of ungodliness is simply take reverence or worship or fear or love of God and put an alpha primitive at the beginning of it without worship, without fear of God, without reverence for God, without noble thoughts of God, without a constant conscious awareness of God. That means tomorrow morning, when you wake up, and you go through your ritual of a morning. And then you go through your ritual of a, a work day. And then you drive home. And you come back in the house. And you go through your evening routine. And it's probably pretty similar. Most of us are pretty much creatures of habit. Some more so than others. But we go through similar habits every day. And any one of those seconds that God does not have the first place in our thinking, we are ah, sibia, without worship. We are ungodly. That's me. That's you. That's us. When we are not consciously aware, consciously worshiping, consciously giving ourselves to the Lord. We are ungodly. He says, God says through Paul, through his Spirit's inspiration, while we wait for the return of Jesus, we must renounce ungodliness. We, we need to ask God to help us to stop forgetting him. You make plans. Where is he in the plans? You order your days, you order your weeks, you order your months, you have a, a, a long-term plan. Where is he in all of it? Renounce ungodliness. He then says, renounce worldly passions. Well, what could that be? Well, you can think about treasure, right? That's, a, that's an area that we can all say, okay, well, I, I can see where that's a worldly passion if, if I become materialistic. And you think of uh, the, the statement of the Lord Jesus, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through or steal. Why? For where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. Okay, so we can, we can say, all right, this is, I, I can see how the worldly passions can go toward treasures. There are so many other ways that this can go. Think about Colossians 3. Now, actually, why don't we turn there so I don't, so, so you're reading it along with me. Colossians 3, just for a moment. I think this is a very practical discussion for us to have. There's more practicality coming as we look a little further into our, our time of consideration. Here in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life and everything about it is hidden with Christ and God. That's your new identity. He is your identity. Like all these things that we, we think about that, that, that can capture our attention, that's all dead. Our real life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I want to talk just for a, a couple minutes about, here's a, a term, we don't use it that often, notoriety. Notoriety. Some of these things will, you'll immediately identify with, some of you maybe not, I don't know. Um, you want to be known as a good Christian. Why? Why do you want to be known as a good Christian? So we can be ill-motived Ill in wanting to be known as a good Christian. Our goal is not the proclamation of self, but the proclamation of Christ. Here's one that some of us will feel instantly. You want to be known as a good parent. Like you don't want your kids to be the one that is having a, the nutty in the store or, um, or down in the fellowship hall or you know, flipping out, having a meltdown, whatever the case, whatever you want to call it. You don't want any of that because if people see your child flipping out, they're going to start judging you. And here's what our biggest problem, I'm, I'm going to just look at the ones that are, that are more in this setting. If we're not careful, we'll be much more concerned with what people think about us than what the real problem is. And what they think about us really doesn't make much of a difference. I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, but that's not why we do what we do. We don't discipline our children so that we're not embarrassed by them. I spent too far, too long of my life where there was this thought about um, if, if your children are this, people will think this, and then you've got to do that. Done. All done. Never again. That's nonsense. I stand accountable to one, my God. So when it comes to raising our children and caring for our children, it's not about people saying, hey, that's a good parent. They're doing it the right way. Hey, they're not, they're not doing it the right way. They, Listen, little kids, they're sinners, enslaved to sin, and if they don't know Christ as their Savior yet, they don't have the Holy Spirit to help them. What do you expect them to do? You and I have the Holy Spirit, and sometimes we're just as terrible as they are. That's why I raise my hand when I say the chiefest of sinners is right here. Because I know. I know better, and I have all of the ability not to sin because of the Spirit dwelling within me. I don't ever have to sin again. So when I sin, 
I just look myself in the mirror and say, you fool. Our kids, do they have, do they know Christ? Do they have the spirit dwelling in them? Maybe yes, maybe no. If they do, let, let's say they do, right? They, you struggle still. What do you think a seven-year-old, a 10-year-old, a, I've got a 14 and a 13 and an 11 and a 3 and a, and a 1. It's like, you think they're going to have this thing mastered? I can't master it. I'm 40 and I spend most of my time in my Bible. So my expectation needs to change a little bit. Um, but the, the point is, worldly passions, notoriety, good Christian, good parent, successful businessman, best student, I don't know what your, what your thing is, what you would, like, what you feel good about, what it feels like a good attaboy pat on the back to you when something goes well. I don't know what it is. What I, my point is, is even those good things can, can have that idolatry. We can wrap really good spiritual clothes on them, but if my motivation is not correct worldly passion. So, we're waiting for Jesus. Do you know he's coming back? Did you know that? Jesus is coming. He's going to consummate all of God's plans. We'll be perfect forever. We're excited about all of this. While we wait, what are we to do? Renounce ungodliness. In other words, we need to allow God to have first place in our thoughts, moment by moment. We need God's help with that. We need to renounce worldly passions and maybe even deciding what is a worldly passion, right? God, show me. Do I have a wrong motivation in this? Worldly passions. And then he makes these statements, and they're, they're glorious. Uh, back in Titus chapter 2, not only to renounce these negative things, but positively to live self-controlled. To live self-controlled. Not allowing... My passions, now we're not talking about like a desire for this other thing, but you know what happens inside of you when, you know, someone cuts you off? I don't, I don't do really well with that whole someone cutting me off thing. Did you see what that person just did to my wife? She's like, shh, your kids are watching you. <laughs> All right, drive by. Self-control. Did you know... That self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's, in the old King James, it's temperance or temperate. So it's self-control, though. That is really helpful to know that self-control that's being called for here is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control may look like self-control, but really the call is not for self-control, but for Spirit control. To live a self-controlled life means I must live a spirit-controlled life. It's the only way that self-control in, in the essence of Scripture will take place. Now, take, remove ourselves from spiritual things. You can be self-controlled in how you eat. You can be self-controlled in how you, you uh, exercise. You can be self-controlled in your disciplines at work. You can come up with some self-controlled items that you'll do fine with. But we're talking about spiritual things, not just physical things. 
So spiritual, spirit, uh, self-control, as is being called for here, is about not allowing anger and wrath and malice and envy and, and bitterness to, to ooze from our lives. Self-control. It looks like, or it's, it is spirit control, but it looks like self-control. Then he says to live upright. Upright. You see the word right there? That has the idea of righteousness. How are you and I going to live a righteous life? What's the recipe, folks? Okay, so we hear the word Christ or the name Christ. What else? Give me more. Grace, Grace very nice. What else? In the word. So we, we've got the, the standard of what is right. Very good. What else? Walk in the spirit. So if, if righteousness is going to come out of my life, I am not its source. I am unable to produce righteousness. Isaiah knew it. All my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Paul knew it. He said, I did all these things, and as far as the world was concerned and all the religious leaders were concerned, I was flawless. But when it comes to God, it was just filthy rags. He used other words, but that's the idea. Righteousness comes from Christ. Righteousness comes from understanding the standard of Christ Righteousness comes from the Spirit taking the Word and applying it to our lives. Righteousness comes as we put on the new man. Then he tells us to live godly. Godly. Well, if not being godly is not thinking about God and not having God on the forefront of our mind, well, what's the opposite of that? Well, godly is having God leading my way and the leading thought and the, the guide and the, and the one that my, has my affections, godly. When should I do this? At the end of verse 12, in the present age. While we're waiting, all of this is to be going on. And then in verse 14, it talks about who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, listen carefully, who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. God wants us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, positively to live self-controlled, to live upright, to live godly, and to be zealous for good works. Good works. Why? What is the purpose of good works in the life of the believer? Will my good works make me pleasing to God? Will my good works, and I mean really, legitimately, in a valid way, in a sincere way, good works, will they make me accepted by God? What do you think? We're already accepted in the Beloved. We're already pleasing through Christ. We, all of the wickets have been checked. This is freeing. This is glorious. So the question is, why then do good works? Why be zealous of good works? Thank you. This is the answer. Because it shows Christ. And the way that I want to say it, because I'm trying to, I'm trying to train our minds, when God demonstrates His works in us, it is a way in which his kingdom is on display here and now. 
God from the beginning of the biblical record to the end of the biblical record has made himself present with his people to activate and bring to a very clear picture his image in us so that we will demonstrate his dominion. That's dominion and kingdom. Okay? God is present in us so that his kingdom can be demonstrated from us and through us. So why be zealous of good works? So that Christ can be seen, so his kingdom can be spread. So people will say, yeah, that's the kind of place I've been longing for. They didn't know it before then. Their whole lives, they, they've been seeking for something. They don't know what it is. They're, 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 they're restless. And then they meet someone who demonstrates God's kingdom and God's son, and they finally figure out, that's what I've been looking for. That's what I've been missing. That's why I'm empty. That's why I found no satisfaction. We demonstrate good works because we want to demonstrate God's power, God's person, and God's kingdom. But you know what, folks? Tomorrow's Monday. And we start to do Monday things. And then Tuesday will come, and we start to do Tuesday things. Guess what comes after that? Wednesday, and we do Wednesday things. And if we're not careful, we just get back to the same boom. And it can get monotonous. No, you don't think, you're not sitting there thinking, oh, this is so monotonous. You just, you're just, you're just doing. You're just being. It's the next day. And you're you're in rhythm. You're doing your thing. And if we're not careful, we're gonna do our thing without awareness of who we're doing it for and what our purpose here is. Jesus is coming. He's coming. While we wait, let us, by God's grace, demonstrate God's kingdom for his glory for the betterment of the church, for the betterment of our world, so that others can see Christ. This is our goal. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us to love you more and to demonstrate you more. We struggle. We struggle, and we pray that you would reveal in us those areas of, of pride and of wrong perspective and motivation that we might yield them to you and that Christ would be seen in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.